Good morning, church. Some of you have asked, I have a strange looking shirt on, and um, some of you have asked, what is that? And uh, this was a gift a couple weeks ago from one of our congregants. I'm looking at him out there, but I won't mention Chris. And um, it's pretty cool. So here it is. Behind every great pastor is an awesome congregation. Thank you, Brother Chris. <laughs> Becky and I, this year will be 10 years we've been here, and uh, I've told several people, and I mean this very much, that this is, we believe, the healthiest and most vital and vitalized church we've ever been a part of. And we love you, we love our flock, and we consider it a huge privilege to be here and be on staff and work with our elders and staff and lay leaders, and just, it is a privilege to truly be here. So, it is true, behind every great pastor, not only is a great pastor's wife, <laughs> she, that is true, but a great congregation. I invite you to turn to the Old Testament book of Joel. We are in for a meal today. I hope you brought a Bible. We're going to be moving around in our book in Joel. As we continue in our series on the Minor Prophets, we come to a small book with a big message, the prophet Joel, writing somewhere between, scholars aren't quite sure, there's really no dates or historical reference points in the book, so dates are usually put somewhere between 5 to 800 BC. And he's telling us about a natural disaster, which is not all that unusual, a natural disaster but a natural disaster in ancient Israel that came with a very clear message from the living God. It's not surprising throughout history that many people have seen natural disasters as carrying some kind of a communication or message from God. One of the most famous is I was doing some research, and one of my favorite stories, I guess, along this line, I don't know if it's my favorite story, but it's a powerful example of this, of a natural disaster that many view with all kinds of different interpretations was the great Lisbon uh, earthquake in 1755, November. It struck about 180 miles off the coast of Lisbon. It's still listed as one of the mo most horrific earthquakes in history. Uh, modern seismologists date it, I mean, not date it, but put it on the Richter scale, somewhere between 8 and 0.5 to 9 on the Richter scale. It was huge. And it rocked Lisbon. And not only did it uh, strike and uh, shake the, uh, the, the, the continent, it sent a tidal wave, a, a huge tsunami slamming into Lisbon, and then resulted in a number of fires. Death estimates uh, range anywhere from 30 to 70,000 people. And, and ironically, it struck on a Sunday morning on All Souls Day and a number, uh, All Saints Day, and, uh, meaning that that many more people were, were killed. Lisbon had a population of about a quarter million. What's interesting is to see all the different interpretations of that event. <laughs> uh, for example, a lot of Roman Catholic clergy saw the disaster as God's message of judgment on the sins of Lisbon. And so it was proclaimed in subsequent weeks. A lot of Protestant clergy saw it as a message of God's judgment on the Catholic Church. <laughs> Interestingly... And uh, some of their dastardly deeds, like the Inquisition and such. The third view was that of uh, Voltaire, who wrote his famous novel, Candide. Very interesting little novel to read. 
who wrote it just a couple years later, he argued there's no message. There's no God. And so when people read messages like this and believe in a good world in the face of these kind of tragedies, they're basically crazy. So all kinds of different messages coming out of natural disasters. In the book of Joel, we're going to see a Holy Spirit-inspired message coming from a natural disaster that struck in Israel about 2,500 years or so ago. The disaster was a massive plague of bugs, of locusts, that descended on ancient Israel and reaped havoc, destroying pretty much everything in its path. And through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this book has never been doubted, it's always been in the Jewish canon, Joel tells us that that locust plague was not only personally sent by God, directed by him, and that he actually rode at the front of it, it was his army, but that it carried a very clear message that has great applicability to children here today, to young people and adults. And so let us hear God's word. I think you'll find this, I hope, interesting, but more than that, challenging and encouraging if you know the Lord. With that, Joel's book divides easily into two parts, pretty much. You have the immediate day of the Lord, and then you have the future day of the Lord. And so we're going to simply dive into it and approach it in that way. So the initial event being described by Joel, if you're in the book of Joel there, chapter 1, is a devastating locust plague that had descended on ancient Israel. Let me read the first four verses. The word of the Lord came to Joel, son of Pethuel. Hear this. You elders, listen all who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? And then you get this common admonition. Make sure to tell this to your children and let your children tell it to their children. In other words, don't let this message die out. And their children to the next generation. What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten, what the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten, and what the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. If you go over to uh, verse 10 and 11, you get a little bit more of a description. The fields are ruined, the ground is dried up, the grain is destroyed, the new wine is dried up, the olive oil fails. Despair, you farmers. Wail, you vine growers. Grieve for the wheat and the barley because the harvest of the field is destroyed. So we have a very devastating event that occurred. In the ancient Middle East, plagues of locusts uh, were, were, were viewed as a uh, terrifying thing, as a common thing. And today, there are still plagues of locusts. Some of you may have seen these kinds of things on YouTube. Not right now. But <laughs> look at somebody. It's, it, they're terrifying. to see. They can be the size of Chicago. They can be the size of, of, of northern Illinois. They can be the size of New York City and beyond. They, uh, they, they can be 100, 200 million insects. They devastate fields. They devastate whole regions. They're absolutely uh, terrifying. And it's very clear from chapter 2, verse 25, who sent these locusts. There's no doubt in the text. If you look over chapter 2, verse 25, God says, I will, he's talking about he's going to, this is part of the blessing that's going to come, and we'll talk about this in a bit, I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. But if you look at the end of the verse, he mentions my great army that, who sent? I sent, I sent among you. 
So this isn't just happenstance that God used. He didn't see a bunch of bugs moving around. He thought, okay, I'm going to grab these bugs or kind of blow on them. God sent the bugs. God is the God of the bugs. He's the, bugs of, he's the, he's the Lord of everything. Nothing happens. Nothing happens in your life, good, bad, or ugly, that the Lord is not directed. I hear this phrase all the time, if something good happens, oh, it's such a God thing. And somebody said that to me this week, and I smiled, and I said, yeah, that's true. However, even if you get cancer and die, that's a God, that's a God thing too. Uh, and we have to remember God is good all the time. And whatever's going on in our lives right this minute, for some of us, things are going well, some of us not going so well, some of us are in deep grief or in chronic pain or we're struggling with financial or relational issues, God is good all the time. And God is clearly in charge here, and he sent this, and he calls it my great army. The problem of devastating plagues, by the way, of locusts, is indicated by the number of words in Hebrew for locusts. So in the Hebrew Old Testament, written in Hebrew, there are nine different words used for locusts. That shows you how common this problem was. In Akkadian, which is the language of Assyria, the ruling empire of the day, there were 18 different words for bug or for locust. So it, it, it's a reminder of how common this is. Uh, several years ago, my son Ben and I, we were just zipping through a few countries in the Middle East, and we were in Oman, a little country tucked between Saudi Arabia and Yemen, and we happened to be at this uh, natural history museum, and there was this huge display, and I actually pulled up the picture this week to remind myself of it. There were 80 different locusts in a box pinned, all of those just from Oman, 80 different locusts. Some of them were big enough to ride. I mean, these are, <laughs> these are big bugs. And to think of, you know, a hundred million of these things descending, you can imagine the devastation this could do and, and, and you know, lives, livestock, uh, crops, livelihoods, everything's on the line when something like this happens. And yet God says, I did it. In fact, God's on record as have, is in charge of the greatest natural disaster in history. That's called the flood. And he's very clear, I did it. Now, the question is this, okay? This happened. It's a great tragedy. What is the message coming from this tragedy? That's the point of the book. The book isn't just about bugs. It's about a message coming from the bugs. And the answer is, Joel is telling us, look at verses 13 to 15, that the devastating locust invasion is a wake-up call from the Lord. That's your phrase. That's your phrase. Kids, young people, that's the phrase. When you have a cloud of this size, magnitude, sweeping through an entire region and just devastating everything, God is saying, this is a message, this is a wake-up call. A wake-up call to my people about their sin, to turn, to repent, so this is a message to religious people, <laughs> people who affirm God, who affirm the scriptures, who would say they love to worship the living God, like many of us here. And yet God is saying, a lot of us, we're not really focused. We're, we're playing games of God. And he, he had warned the people, and he'd warned the people, and he warned the people, and finally he sent this devastating look at invasion, verses 13 through verse 15. We read, put on sackcloth, you priests, and mourn and wail, you who minister before the altar. Come spend the night in sackcloth. So the first people he addresses are the leaders, the priests, those who minister at the altar. You who minister before my God for the grain offerings and drink offerings are withheld from the house of your God. Declare a holy fast. Call a sacred assembly. 
Summon the elders and all who live in the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas, for that day, for the day of the Lord is near and it will come like destruction. And who's it coming from? Not Satan, coming from the Almighty. Now notice verse 15. Here's our phrase for today. The day of the Lord. Some of you have been in your Bibles for years and you know the phrase. For some of us, we're newer and we're not really comfortable. We don't really know that phrase. So the day of the Lord is a key theme here. As we head into chapter 2, what's interesting is some scholars believe that we're not only dealing still with bugs, some believe that we actually now are also dealing with locusts that are representing a common foreign human army of, of invaders, maybe the Babylonians, maybe the Syrians. Either way, here's the point. Israel is being warned. That, that's the key. They're being warned as a wake-up call to come to grips with their sin. This is God's discipline on their sin, on their foolish, rebellious choices that they have been warned about over and over and over, and the consequences, God says, are going to be painful. He's not saying, I'm going to obliterate my people, but my people are going to know that they have been smitten. When you get smitten by the Lord, there's no doubt you've been smoted. Look at chapter 2, verses 1 to 2. Smoted, smitten, past tense. Preachers make up lots of good words. Blow the trumpet of Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble. There's a verse in Isaiah where God says, this is the one I esteem one who trembles at my word. It's easy to sit and enjoy Bible study, enjoy listening to preaching, enjoy preaching on the radio. It's another thing to tremble at the word of God. The day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, like dawn spreading across the mountains. A large and mighty army comes. So day of the Lord is our phrase. And here the day of the Lord, you see it once again, was mentioned in 115. Now it's mentioned in 2.2. The description continues in chapter 2, verse 11. When we reference this verse, the, the, the Lord thunders at the head of his army. His forces are beyond number. Mighty is the army that obeys his command. The emphasis here on the sovereignty of God, even over bugs, is amazing. It's like in Jonah where God commands the fish to do this and he commands the fish to do that, that he commands the fish to vomit. Here you got God commanding bugs to do this and God commanding bugs to do that. So if you know Christ, if you know the Lord, one of the great reminders from this book is just that God is in control, he's good, and you can trust him whatever he is doing even when it's painful in your life and that he can be loving. Now it brings up the question, Phrase, day of the Lord appears, comes up almost 20 times in the Old Testament, four times in the New Testament, five times in the book of Joel. So one of the keys to Bible study is what? Repetition. You're looking for repeated phrases, repeated words, because they're telling you something, just like when you look at your kids and repeat something multiple times, right? Your community, they don't listen. Or your grandkids. They don't listen sometimes. And so what do you do? You repeat. And you repeat again. And then you threaten a bit. And then judgment falls. Or it should fall. Right? 
That's what's happening here. And that's why when you come to this phrase that comes up over and over again, question is, what is it? So let me do my best just in like 60 seconds to describe or define uh, what the day of the Lord is. The day of the Lord is a phrase in Old Testament passages that conveys a nearness and a judgment both on Israel, here's key, and the nations. It's not always just Israel, although they are often the target of the day of the Lord in the judgments, but also on the nations. It can be either one. Isaiah 13, 6, wail for the day of the Lord is near. So this emphasis on the nearness of it is the first aspect I want to focus on. Ezekiel 30, verse 3, the day of the Lord is near, a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nations. Now, some Old Testament passages, in fact, most of them, refer to the day of the Lord, and they just, they're, what they're doing is these passages are describing historical judgments that have taken place on Israel and call them the day of the Lord, like when the Egyptians plundered them, or the Babylonians, or the Assyrians, or the Moabites, or the Ammonites, whoever. These are often called the day of the Lord. You were visited by the day of the Lord. You, you're getting smoted for your sin, and you haven't repented. But it's interesting At other times, the phrase is used to describe judgment that will take place in a distant future, an ultimate, final day of the Lord. So you have these local, temporal, near day of the Lord's, but regularly you get these uh, pointers that, well, these are true, but they're actually pointing something far greater, an ultimate day of the Lord that is coming. So listen to a few other biblical writers describe the day of the Lord. It it's, should be terrifying language for anybody. Jeremiah 46.10, the day of the Lord is a day of vengeance. Zephaniah 1.15, that day is a day of wrath, and a day of trouble and distress, and a day of devastation. Malachi 4.5, last book in the English canon of Scripture. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the dreadful day of the Lord. Now, here's the key. When you come back to Joel... The first half of Joel, the question is, is he dealing with it near or is he dealing with it far? And the answer is he dealing with it near. So verse 115, we've already seen the day of the Lord is at hand. It's here. And it will come as destruction from the Almighty and the locust are God's visual aid. And then 211 again, for the day of the Lord is very great and troubling, terrible. Now let me give you some good news at this point. If you look at Joel right in the middle of chapter 2, you will find it is saturated with declarations of God's love and his offer of mercy. And that's what's so interesting about the day of the Lord is often the day of the Lord is intermixed with language of promise, blessing, and renewal if, what? The people will respond. Not always, but often there's this kind of language. So, for instance, 2 verses 12 to 14, you have this language, extravagant language, God's offer to forgive and bless those who are ready to say, I'm ready to stop playing games with God. Some of us here this morning are playing games with God. And we fool ourselves in thinking there won't be that big a deal. Consequences aren't going to be that severe. And we deceive ourselves. So Joel 2, 12 to 14, even now, listen to this extravagant promise. Here's this, I mean, this is gospel invitation. Even now declares the Lord, return to me with 
all your heart. Not lip service, not just showing up, not just singing songs and listening to preaching and being with God's people. Return to me with all your heart. You've got to be all in here. With fasting and weeping and mourning. Tear your heart and not just your garments. Some of you know tearing your garments was a sign of repentance because of the anguish and the grief. You would shred your garment or tear it. God says, that's just to show sometimes. Make sure you're tearing your heart. Return to the Lord your God. He is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in love. And he relents from sending calamity. I mean, you, you would, it would be hard to find two more gospel-drenched verses in your Old Testament. And there are some here this morning who claim Christ, but you've been giving in to sin, and God is saying to you, this gospel offer, repent before more damage is done. What's tragic today in ancient Israel, as today, are how many pastors and clergy do not talk about the day of the Lord. Do not talk about a coming judgment. Do not talk about hell. And never plead, P-L-E-A-D, with their people, with their children, with their young people, with their people to flee the coming wrath. Never warn that hell is eternal. It's not going to be vanquished. It is Described over and over again, not only by Jesus, but in the, in the revelation of John, as an eternal punishment. They never press the words. you got many pastors and clergy who will get up and lead people in all sorts of different liturgy. But they never press their people with the words of Jesus, you must be born again. You need to be saved. There is something wrong. And it can be remedied if you will be spiritually reborn. And so critical that pastors and lay leaders and elders do that and that moms and dads, you're doing that with your kids. Don't just expect that the church will do it. You are the primary evangelist. You are the primary disciplers for your children. And so if you have kids at home, if you are around your grandkids, make sure you are evangelizing them and then discipling them and urging them to repent and stressing the need for the new birth. That brings us secondly then to the future day of the Lord. And there's a shift here in the book of Joel, as there often is in prophetic literature. So from verses 18 to 321 to the end of the book, there's now a shift. As we've noted, there can be a nearness to the day of the Lord. That's often how it's used. Watch out, it's coming. It's around the corner. But then you get these glimmers that sometimes, you know what, it's these local Judgments are actually just pointing to a future judgment. And this becomes more explicit in the New Testament. So, for example, Acts 2.20. Hear this maybe in a way you've not heard it before. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. That's just picked right up out of the prophets. Before the great day of the Lord. Well, where have we heard that phrase? They picked it right up out of the prophets. Or in 2 Peter 3.10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the elements will be destroyed by fire. So those temporal day of the Lords are simply pointing to an ultimate day of the Lord. And beyond this, what's interesting is in the New Testament, you not only have this future aspect mentioned, 
in the New Testament, the day of the Lord actually is expanded and enlarged. Let me give you one example. If you turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, you will see one of the mentions of the day of the Lord and how there's an expansion to it. There's a, it's enlarged to include both blessing and judgment, salvation and coming damnation. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, towards the end of your New Testament, You'll see the phrase again, and in these verses, Paul's grammar and wording suggest that the future day of the Lord is actually a series of events, not just one thing. So let me read these two verses. First Thessalonians is written by the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, verses, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Now, brothers, sisters about times and dates about now notice these are plural nouns times and dates we do not need to write you for you know very well that the day of the lord there's our phrase will come like a thief in the night people will be saying peace and safety destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not Escape. Now look at the phrase there again. Look at the two plural nouns there, times and dates. Both are connected. These two plural nouns are connected to the day of the Lord. In other words, what am I saying? The future day of the Lord, this future ultimate day of the Lord, is a final, it, it seems to be, and it's beyond just 1 Thessalonians here, when Paul talks about it, it seems to be a final event with many other events inside it. And you don't see that so much in the Old Testament. And these events, especially when Paul says times and dates, they can cover even days or weeks or even years, and they can involve both salvation and judgment in the New Testament. In fact, in the, day, in the New Testament, the day of the Lord covers. We know the day of the Lord covers in the New Testament, the life of Jesus, his resurrection, his death and resurrection, his the, the final epic battle, Armageddon, it covers the final judgment and the new heaven and the new earth. And so the future ultimate day of the Lord leads to the triumph of the Lamb through a whole series of events, what Paul calls in these times and the dates, there's a number of events within events within events that will lead to the final judgment. That brings us back to Joel chapter 2 where we're going to finish here. In this last section, verses 18 to the end of the book, the day of the Lord is no longer an immediate locust invasion. That's the key. It is now a distant judgment on the nations and, that's key, time of blessing and salvation for Israel. In this last section, Joel is going to give us three promises associated with the future ultimate day of the Lord. So we're going to walk through these three promises, and then we're going to land the plane. Here we go. Promise number one in Joel, talking about the future day of the Lord. One. It is a promise of restoration for Israel. Look at verses 18 to verse 27. The first promise has to do with restoration of Israel. After a time of judgment, again, there's no specific time frame given, but there's going to be a restoration. So this could be after the exile. It also could be easily talking about their future restoration. But the language, here's the key. The language is generous. It's abundant language. It's, it's, it's filled with promises. So chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. Notice the extravagance of the language. Chapter 2, verse 18. 
The Lord was jealous for his land and took pity on his people. The Lord replied to them, I am sending you grain, new wine and olive oil, enough to satisfy you a little bit. Is that what it says? Fully. Fully. We've all had a meal where we didn't quite have enough, and then we've all had a meal where we had plenty. We know the difference. Never again will I make you an object of scorn to the nations. That hasn't happened yet, by the way. Look at verses 24 to 26. More promises made in this future day of the Lord, this future aspect of it, Israel. 24, the threshing floors will be filled with grain. The vats will overflow with new wine and oil. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. The great locusts, the young locusts, the other locusts, the locust swarm. There's four different words for locusts used there. My great army that I sent among you. And you will have plenty to eat until you're full. That's so like God. When he does bless, it comes in abundance. And you will praise the name of the Lord your God who has worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be shamed. That hasn't happened yet, but it's a future thing. So the first promise connected to the day of the Lord in this last half of Joel is a future restoration of Israel. Promise number two is a promise that the Holy Spirit will be poured out in those last days, verses 28 to 32. There's going to be a great movement of the Holy Spirit in these latter days. So verse 28, afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. And your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Who quotes this? Peter. I heard it. Peter quotes this in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. Where does he go? He goes to the book of Joel. And he quotes it. And he associates it with the last days. Now some of us think last days. Oh yeah, yeah, those are the... Those are the days, wait, 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 the future. In the New Testament, it's interesting, the last days are seen as beginning at Pentecost and going through the second coming of Christ. So we're in the last days. I don't know when Christ is coming, but he is coming back. It'll be visible, it'll be thunderous, and the world will know when it happens. And we are in those last days, which started 2,000 years ago at Pentecost. So three promises In the second half of Joel, related to the day of the Lord, one, promise of restoration for Israel. It's coming. And the very fact, ladies and gentlemen, young people, that in 1948, May, 75 years ago, Israel, for the first time, became a nation in almost 2,000 years, I think is a huge sign on the prophetic calendar that something is taking place. Now, today, the vast majority of Israelis do not believe in Jesus. That's obvious when you're there. But there's a day coming. And that is the promise. Second promise is a promise that then the Holy Spirit will be poured out in an unusual way. Third and last promise, and this is in three, all of chapter three here, and there's a promise of judgment and salvation. Judgment on who? First of all, judgment on the nations. The language here is very strong. So in those days, verse one, chapter three, that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations. Here again, this huge emphasis on God as the master designer and his providence. He is the one who lifts and exalts nations or takes them down or exalts rulers and takes them down or who sends bugs or pulls them back. I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And there I will put them on trial 
for what they did to my inheritance, my people Israel, because they scattered my people among the nations and divided up the land. So first of all, a promise of judgment. Uh, Also look at verses 12 and 13. 12 and 13, let the nations be roused. In other words, uh, be aware. Let them advance in the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the nations on every side. Verse 13 is especially poignant. Swing the sickle. Any of you have ever swung the sickle out in a field? For the harvest is ripe. Come, trample the grapes. The wine press is full. And the vats overflow, so great is their wickedness. So the promise here is of judgment on the nations. But then there's a promise, friends, of future restoration for God's people. And if you know Jesus, according to the New Testament, if you've been born again and God's Holy Spirit is really alive in you, you are part of God's people. New Testament talks about we are Gentiles, most of us are Gentiles, are grafted in to the people of God. And so these verses, as you read them, have direct applicability to us, if you know Christ here this morning. Verses 16 to 18, hear these words and be encouraged, whatever you're going through right this minute. The Lord will roar from Zion, thunder from Jerusalem. Earth and heavens will tremble. The Lord will be a refuge. The Lord will be a refuge for his people. Do you need a refuge today? You need a refuge today? A lot of us need a refuge today. A stronghold for the people of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. Why does God do all of this? Not because of the righteousness of his people. Not because we're deserving of being blessed. Because God is worthy of worship. And he wants us to know that. I'll dwell in Zion, my holy hill. Jerusalem will be holy. Never again will foreigners invade her. Again, this has not been fulfilled. But it's coming. In that day, verse 18, the mountains will drip new wine and all the hills will flow with milk and all the ravines of Judah will run with water. In the Midwest, water is a nuisance most of the time. (laughs) In Middle East, it's not a nuisance. It's life. It's gold. You live in an arid region like the Middle East. If you've ever been in the Middle East and felt Middle Eastern heat, or if you're from Phoenix, same thing. <laughs> I, keep, I actually put Phoenix on my app now to watch it every day. Wow. I grew up very near Death Valley in California. I remember going to Death Valley, Bakersfield, Fresno out there. Woo! Those are hot. And God is saying, yes, there will be a day and my people will be protected from this kind of of judgment. Now, salvation, and, and you look at verses 16 to 18, it culminates on a new earth for true Christians by spending forever in the presence of the Lord. Wine dripping mountains, milk flowing hills, water filled ravines. What does all that speak of? God's abundance. This isn't meager, this is abundant. This is abundant for God's people, if you know the Lord. God saves his people to make himself known, to be enjoyed by his people forever. All right, let's land a plane. What's the summons of this book? So let's make it clear. Joel has a warning and an invitation. So let's listen up. What's the warning? The warning is a future day of judgment is coming. 
And are you ready to meet God? I grew up in a denomination where there were precious, uh, if any, warnings ever given. Pastors need to plead with their people. There is a day of judgment coming. There is a final day of the Lord coming. Are you ready, young people? Are you ready to meet God? Kids, are you ready to meet the living God? Some of us will not be here a year from today because we will have passed on. Are you ready to meet God? The question is, well, then, how, Pastor, tell me how to make sure. I can't assume we all know how to, how to be right with God. So how do, you, how do you find forgiveness? How can you be right with God? Maybe you've sat in a church for years. I remember a young woman sitting in my office years ago, and she said, I've been in such and such a church for uh, 20 years. And she said, and then we, I, I came over here, and I've heard you talk about how to be born again and how to be saved. And she got angry, and she said, how come I never heard that in my other church? And I said, I don't know. But I looked at her and said, maybe your pastor isn't saved. And maybe you need to pray for him. And then she kind of calmed down. Are you ready to meet God? Have you been born again? Sobering reality is many sit in churches for years. Some are sitting here today. You hear warning after warning after warning. And you think, I'm fine. No big deal. Not a big deal. They behave a lot like many in Jonetown, Pennsylvania in May 1889. David McCullough has, I think, one of his most fascinating books on the Jonestown Flood. It's located in the Laurel Mountains, about 70 miles east of Pittsburgh, Jonestown, Johnstown. And what happened there is absolutely cryptic and a good reminder of biblical callings and summonings. At the end of May 1889, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers estimated that 6 to 10 inches of rain had fallen within 24 hours in that area. And causing, there was, a, there was a huge lake there, and it was causing that lake, it was a 400-acre lake, to, uh, it, and it was held back <laughs> by a poorly maintained dam, the South Fork ta- Dam. And, uh, and for years, engineers had been warning, U.S. Uh, US Geological Survey had been warning, this thing could break. This is not in good shape. And then right below in the valley is Johnstown, and there's some other settlements, and you know several thousand people living. And they warn these people, this thing could go at any time. It's not in good condition. And these were credible warnings, and the people became callous to them. McCullough talks about how many warnings there were over the years. And then suddenly, May 1889, it happened after this huge onslaught of rain. On May 31st, the dam gave way. 20 million tons of water were unleashed. The force of Niagara River. You ever seen Niagara River? Force of Niagara River. 57 minutes later, a wall of water 50 feet high slammed into Johnstown and the villages and the settlements around it in the valley instantly. And within 10 minutes, Johnstown was virtually obliterated and killed 2,200 people. In fact, it is, McCullough brings out, it's the largest man-made disaster in American history prior to 9-11 because people didn't listen to the warnings. So there's a warning in Joel. Are you ready? When you least expect it, you may die. You're going to die. We all have an appointment with the undertaker unless Christ returns first. 
we're all going to be in the box. We're all going to be ashes. Do you know God? But the second and last thing, there's an invitation in the book of Joel to those who do know God. So if you're here this morning and you say, I resonate with this, I want to I be holy, I want to be Boy, you know, I want to be right with God. There's a call here to examine, to repent, and return to the Lord and find our rest. So I close again, chapter 2, verses 12 to 14. Gospel-drenched verses. You have to end here. 2, 12 to 14. This is to those who know God. So if you're here this morning, you've been born again, and you know the living God, and the Holy Spirit's alive in you. Even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart with fasting and weeping and mourning. Tear your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. And, and, then, and then the why is given. Why? Because he's gracious. God is gracious. And he's compassionate. He really is. And he is slow to anger. He does get angry, but he's slow. And abounding in love. And he relents from sending calamity. So there's some here today who say, I am a born-again Christian. I know Christ yeah, I bet I have been disobeying God, and I've been getting casual about obedience issues, be it tithing or the need to get baptized or honoring the Sabbath day or honoring your parents or telling lies or how you use your mouth or stealing or whatever the issue you've gotten sloppy on. God is today, it's not an accident you're here, is saying, look at your life, repent before more damage is done before greater harm is done. And the Bible says God loves to shower blessing and compassion on those who fear him. That's what this is about. So the bottom line of Joel is this. Unrepentant sinners should be terrified of the day of the Lord. Probably not, but they should be because it's coming. But those who are forgiven and know Jesus can anticipate it with eagerness and joy. And may that be us here today. Father, thank you for this remarkable prophet. So much going on in such a small book. Thank you for your invitation and your warning in this book. And I pray you would do what only you can do. I can't make these words live in the hearts of us. You can. So may those who need warning, Father...